Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, we tackle two important topics, racism and well-being. I'm joined by Dr. Victoria Shawanmi, Associate Professor at University College London, UCL. Victoria has been doing important research on the intersection of black girls and well-being. We are well aware of the global mental health crisis in youth. Victoria helps us learn more about one marginalized group within the broader population. The findings from her research point to strategies educators can and should be using in our classrooms and schools. Strategies that will make a difference for black girls and many others as well. Hello, Victoria, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much, Jennifer. It is thrilling to have you here. And uh, what the audience doesn't know is that you and I had an opportunity to meet a couple of times already. And the first time was at the ICSI conference in January. And that's the International Congress for School Effectiveness and Improvement, where you and I and Andy Hargraves and Dennis Shirley were doing a piece on well-being. And I was so impressed with your presentation that I thought I just have to have you back on the Knowledge Hook Roundtable and on a podcast. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm kind of astonished, actually, that you want to have me back again. So um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Victoria, when we did the roundtable, there was a really good crowd participating. And so many of the participants in the chat asked questions about your research and asked questions about you. So let's take it to the beginning for the audience. How did you get into academia? You have a storied career already. And what led you to come into academia and work in the area that you're working? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I suppose in the long and short of it is that. Um, I was um, very much interested in learning and um, I wanted to come to work in London and I'd got a job in the Further Education College, um, which I'd come from another one. And I had an opportunity to do a master's and I was going to do it full time. And the principal of the college at the time um, was, I think there was a little bit concerned that here I am as a, as a youngish woman and a single parent and I'm going to do it full time, no additional money and I've taken sabbatical from work. And so she said to me at the time, just before I was going to completely go full time in my sabbatical, would um, her friend who was um, or a colleague of hers who she knew was at another university and was just received a grant and wanted somebody to do a project for her, a lead on a project as a researcher. And it was looking at increasing the numbers of black teachers within teacher education. So I went to see the lady and um, I got offered that particular role. And it was, you'd think now, if you see this role, it was actually a fully pledged senior research role, which I got. And even though I was on sabbatical, I did that for the year. I didn't go back to FE afterwards. I went back for, I think, just to kind of say goodbye to everybody. And that was my journey into HE. That is quite a send off story. And you have done such incredible work since then. Tell me, how did you focus in on research on Black girls? And of course, no surprising, you're a formidable Black woman yourself, and there is a huge need out there. But what was the jump off point for that type of research? 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting question, actually. And it helps me because I'm going to be on TV in a couple of weeks. You know, they, they're doing something for that. They ask me something similar. So it gives me a bit of practice. So for me, it was, um, I was brought up in a very white area. I'd never had a best friend who was black or anything like that. My parents are Jewish and they're the ones who raised me in a very upper class background. And, but, and I was very interested in women. And so it wasn't until, again, I was doing a lot of work with women and I came to London and um, I did a master's in gender studies. And uh, I was interested in what was going on with women's development. And I, my first degree was in the experiences of further education, but looking at black girls in further education, because when I came to further education in London, I just felt what was going on. And my second degree was looking at women again. And my doctorate was in looking at the challenges of black women and their experiences of being unemployed. And no one had really done those areas. So I think I wanted to also challenge what it was to be a woman because much of the stuff was around white feminism. And I saw myself as a kind of a born activist in my working. So I think that's what drew me to it. I really wanted to have that voice of black women and black girls. So let's fast forward to the research that you've done. And again, what you shared on the roundtable was your research that was connecting Black girls and young Black women to well-being. And of course, well-being is a research topic that is of huge interest, uh, obviously, since the pandemic. But before the pandemic, I think, you know, educational research was really shifting to a focus almost uniquely on student achievement and student learning to really understanding that the whole student well-being piece was important. And of course, you have a very specific piece within that that's Black girls and well-being. Tell us a little bit about your findings. What are you learning about their well-being? I think one of the things which is quite stark about some of the research is the formation of identity and what that means. And I'm really starting to look at whether one's identity impacts on the way you achieve within society. And I think that's what's really enabled me to really drill down. And that's come out a lot in the data, who they are and who they are and who they believe they are. And I think that's something. So whether it's to do with their body shape, whether it's to do with the way they are. So there's lots of work which have been presented about the loud black girls, but there's nothing about the loud other girls, it's always focusing on as a negative that these women, uh, young girls, are seen as loud and uh, kind of aggressive and a whole range of different things, which isn't true. And I was also interested in, and what's come out of the, the research as well, is that there's a lot of suffering in silence because of the perception is that these girls are confident and they really are amazingly out there. All you need to do is just scratch that surface slightly. And they are just like a swan on water, paddling underneath, and they need some support. And that's what I was interested in. You know, Victoria, it's interesting what you say, because there are some societal norms around a couple of those adjectives that you've used. You've talked about loud and confident as somehow being perceived in young Black girls, that that's a negative. And yet when we think of all sorts of other groups, if they're loud and they're confident, it's actually seen as a positive. So. Tell me a little bit about your thinking about that. I mean, that just seems so blatantly unfair. There's a gender piece in there. There is a cultural piece in there. It's so wrong. And like you said, that the Black women are 
being perceived differently for potentially the same characteristics. And then that is actually even those characteristics, like you said, there's a vulnerability underneath. So tell me about that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So for example, when I was doing some of the research I've done, I've done it at the same time as doing work with black women as well. So in the schools I was, I was looking at, you know, what's it like to be a young black girl in school? I asked that question. It was an innocent question. What's it like to be one young black girl? What are your friendships groups? What's your experience? At the same time I was doing that piece of research, I was doing another piece of research, which was about leaders. And these were leaders from all sorts of life, including FTSE 100, millionaire leaders, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked them questions about, does your identity impact on the way you lead? And tell me about that. And what is your experiences of being a leader who is of colour? What was interesting is that the two started to collide. So as the young girls were talking about that, they felt that they ne you needed to be the whiter side of black to be able to go up the school system. The women, which were leaders, were saying to me, one has to bleach their identity to be accepted within the organisation. Now, you might take a step back and think, well, you know, if I'm coming from a working class background, maybe I do need to hide certain bits about me and all things like that. That's not what they're talking about. And when you look at both of those things, you're then talking about when can you be your authentic self if you've got to then start thinking, this isn't working for me. I've got to be more whiter. I've got to be, show the attributes which to be more white. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. That's not good for one's well-being. That starts to impact on your mental health. That is so true. And, and even taking that into the broader population, the good news, Victoria, is that we are seeing more and more educators talk about this idea of valuing identity of their students and of all students and making sure that they begin lessons, that the culture within the classroom is this idea of, you know, valuing and respecting each of the individuals that are in the classroom for the identities that they come from. So the good news is that we're starting to see more talk about that type of approach. But, you know, you have a very particular piece from the group that you're thinking of with the Black girls in particular. And that idea of bleaching your identity, it's a scary statement, isn't it? That Black women, older Black women that are well along in their careers had to think about that and that it starts at a very young age because your research on young girls are already noticing that. It's such a, a sad statement and we need to get away from that, don't we? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at the young girls and uh, there is so much sadness when they come to university. So I'm involved with a lot of young women at the university status. And they've come, and, we, and I'm at an elite establishment. I'm at University College London. It's an elite establishment. We can't get away from that. And so they come to us and they seek somebody who looks like them, if possible. It's not that often because there's only 17 of us, 17 black academics in the whole of that university out of 8,600 of it is black academics in that university. So there's 17 of us, right? So when they do see you, and I did a big focus group, um, Jennifer, a couple of years ago. And it was about suffering in silence. There must have been 35, if not 45, young women and a few young men in that space 
wanting to talk about their experiences at the university. There were tears, many tears, much anger, but they wanted to talk about, and they felt they were in isolation. And for them to just be in that room with 45 women, young women who were at university with them, that was healing in itself, that they weren't alone and they could just make connections. The things they were saying, you know, how other students were perceiving them, because you've also got the fact that other students are thinking, oh, I didn't know your hair was like that. Is that your real hair? Oh, right, okay. So why do you do that to you? And why is it that, you know, you're wearing this or you're doing that? And, and when they're doing things in the lesson, and they look at the, the individual and saying, well, um, yeah, um, you'd know about that, wouldn't you? Well, why would I know about that to the students? You don't know what my background is, but you're making an assumption. So all these kind of assumptions, so they've got the curriculum, which kind of pushes them in a different way. They've got their friendship groups, which they're having to educate their friendship group when they're coming into different parts. All these things add to racial burden, you know, kind of is trauma, racial trauma and emotional burden, which other young people don't have to carry. And Victoria, that's exactly why I wanted you to come on this podcast so that we could talk more about this. You know, the, the research that you're doing, leaders like yourself that are going out and talking about this, giving a place for younger leaders to be coming in and a safe place for them to be talking about that. We have a lot of work to do in our education systems, and I'm really thankful that you're helping us do that. When I think of, you know, are there other researchers that you have been working with that are doing work in this area that, you know, our listeners may be interested in looking more into some of their research as well? Can you talk about a couple of people that you're, you're working with? In America, there's, there's some guys I'm working with, which is like Stephen Hancock. He's doing work on curriculum trauma. So if you think about the curriculum and how that's traumatic experience, he's doing work on that. Colleagues like Anne Phoenix has done a lot of work around identities her work as well. There's Yvani's work. She's done a lot of work on um, the education of Black children and, and the impact of not having somebody who looks like you or understands who you are, so you, you ask Yvani Mailer. There's a whole range of different people, but I'm particularly looking at Black girls, and I get a lot of flack for that. Well, we want you to bravely forge ahead because it will help us in, in our work that we're doing with Black girls, but with all sorts of groups of kids, right? The, the interesting thing about research and strategies is that when we find something that works really well for a very small group of our most vulnerable students, those practices and strategies are usually, if you take them up a higher level, are really good for all children. You know, what you're talking about, we need to know more in particular about what Black girls need so that we can do a better job with that group. But I am confident that some of those strategies at a higher level will be good for all students. Acknowledging identity, uh, finding a place, a safe place for kids to be able to talk about how they're feeling and be very real with their feelings. Those are good practices. And, and you're absolutely right, because before you know, the COVID scenario, I talked to lots of students and there was a whole mixture of students would come to the sessions with me. And um, there would be white girls who'd be standing, coming to talk to me and said, it feels like you're speaking to me. You're speaking to me. That's my experience. Or somebody else coming from China or Japan or wherever it is, they'd say, you're, you're speaking to me. I said, well, I'm speaking to all young women. And I want you to understand that. This kind of, I need to be a good girl. And it starts off with that. 
I need to be a good girl in school. But even though you're a good girl in school, you're still being perceived, you're still being profiled. And that's the bit which is difficult. And I think that's the bit which leaders need to understand is that you're profiling these young girls. Why? Why? Even if you hear a voice in the classroom, you're still saying it's X, Y, and Z when they haven't opened their mouth. Why is that? Because you've got this bird in your voice which says it must be that, it cannot be that young woman over there. It's got to be that one over there, even though that one hasn't opened their mouth. These are the types of things which are going on in schools. And the girls are starting to push back and say, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. But of course, that has a consequence. Victoria, you've had the opportunity to go into classrooms and to be working with teachers and young Black women. What are some of the strategies that you're seeing? You know, if you had to give advice to teachers or to school principals, system leaders, what kind of advice would you give as far as the strategies that are really helping young Black girls? I think one of the things, and this is just a really basic thing, Jennifer, is to go with your gut feeling as leaders. And even though you might get pushed back because you're going to give some space. So one of the strategies, give some space to your young Black girls to be able to talk about who they are as young Black women. You might get pushed back. They might say, oh, well, what about that group of people? But depending, just give some space about that. And also enable your team to understand that, look at the research, understand that these young women, young girls, young women, older women, are the ones which are at the bottom of society. Whether it's a pay gap, whether it's attainment. Attainment, they may be doing better than black boys, but their exclusion rate now in the UK is starting to overtake. They're also getting themselves mixed up with gangs, violence, a whole range of other things, ex- sex exploitation. So the strategies are really is look, these young people are vulnerable young people. They need to be nurtured. They've got a history which in itself is problematic because of what took place in enslavement. And so we now as leaders, we need to say we want these young women to thrive completely. Also, the networks provide coaching, provide coaching for your black girls. There's a lot of coaching for young black boys, provide coaching for black girls. Do that. That's interesting. I never thought of the difference between coaching for young black boys and coaching for young black girls, and that it's maybe less available for young black girls. And uh, what a potential we're, we're missing out on if we're not providing that to those girls as well. Yeah, because of this inbuilt aspect of they're strong, you know, emotionally, they don't need it. We can't see that they perhaps need some extra support. And I know it with my girls. I've got three daughters and I know what it is. My youngest daughter's 17. And I say to her, you know, how are you doing? Fine. And that's not the typical teenage thing. But when I'm looking at her and I have to kind of do a different strategy and get behind her kind of persona of being six foot two and also kind of in that kind of space, then I realise that she's a vulnerable young person who's finding her way and needs a little bit of a helping hand. And I think that's a bit. Be tough, tough love, but also recognise that these young girls and women need something else. But also, when they finish their A-levels, we do A-levels in the UK, if they're kind of being the good girl in class, they get their A-levels and they're doing some stuff. There was one girl who spoke about 
she finished her A-levels and um, she was in the middle of doing it just before the exams. And um, they were having a conversation about racism a couple of years ago. And the students in her class were just amazed. They were all white girls and she was a young black girl. And they turned to her and said, do you experience racism? And she said, yes, I do. They were shocked. They didn't know what to do. And she was shaking. The teacher was holding her because she was shaking. It's the first time that she'd spoken about her experience of racism in the school. And one of the teachers shared this with me. So going back to strategies, provide an opportunity for your teachers to talk about the experiences where they need to talk about the experiences of biasness, profiling within the classroom. Have those really kind of difficult conversations. And I think that's a really important point. Victoria, you talked about in the roundtable, you talked about racism as a public health crisis. And I think that that is such a great way of framing the work that we have to do, because in order for kids to be learning, they have to be well. In order for kids to be well, we have to tackle some of those really difficult topics like racism. And I so appreciate the work that you're doing. You have some really interesting publications coming out. Tell us a little bit about those. Okay, one of the books we've got, which is I'm the lead editor, which is called The Bloomsby Handbook on um, Gender and Educational Leadership and Management. Now, that book, we did all the heavy lifting in, in the pandemic, March 31st or whatever it was, and we handed that in March 31st, 2021. Yikes, that was a pandemic project. <laughs> exactly. 26 chapters from all over the world, all top leaders in um, educational research. So anybody you can think of, they're in that book. And um, it's now been done and it's out any moment now, um, which is really fantastic. So that is really interesting because it's got five sections in the book. And one of the sections is on emotional and well-being of educational leaders. So there's a section on that as well. It's, yeah, it's fascinating. You've got people from Brazil and Pakistan and Germany, Australia, New Zealand, US, Ireland, all different parts. Victoria, I can guarantee you we're going to be knocking on your door to talk about that one because gender and leadership is such an important theme. We'll be knocking on your door for that as well. I hope so. And it's the first time the handbook's been done. A handbook's been done on gender and leadership. Can you imagine it's been around all those years? So that's that one. The next one is more conceptual book. And um, I've done all the conceptual work. My colleague, Carol Tomlin, uh, she wrote the book with me. I've done kind of about six chapters of the book, which are all conceptual. So the bit which people are talking about is the stuff, the stuff I've done, which is really looking at racism as sophistication. The book is called Understanding and Managing Sophisticated and Everyday Racism, colon, Limitations, Education and Workplace. Now, the aspect of sophistication is what I named it. Because to me, growing up in a white space, coming to live in a, a city, going all over the world, is sophistication. It is sophisticated. It's not something which is, you can touch it and say, oh, Jennifer, it's this. this. No, it's sophisticated because everybody's trying to grapple with it and everybody wants to make it something which is not. They, so they're going to put a kind of a sheen over the top or they're going to do it this way or that way. And so in the end, it can drive you crazy because it's invisible and that's the thing because I could say Jennifer when I'm looking over there I feel that something's going on you say what are you talking about Victoria nothing's going on over there it's just it's just your mind that's how it happens and I say no it's not my mind I can see 
that's going on over there and I don't feel comfortable. He said, oh, please don't do it. And it's not until maybe six months later, you say, you know what you said to me about X, Y, and Z? I didn't realise what you were saying then because it's a difficult space. It is like a virus. You can't really see it. It's over there. And one of the chapters in the book is about the big house and it's called The Tangled Web. And what that's looking at is the interplay between black women and white women in the workplace. And I'm saying it's really kind of a backstop from what took place in enslavement in the plantation house. So I talk about that, but that's chapter two. But chapter eight, once you've got through a lot of the discussion and I talk about what is sophisticated racism, and I also talk about something else, which is WWS. I've called it WWS, which is white women syndrome. And that is about what happens when white women perhaps are either faced with sophisticated racism or start to kind of squirm around, not quite sure how to deal with it. And they have this syndrome where they either get defensive or start crying or act in a certain way. And da, 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 da. So I've named it white women syndrome. No one's used that before. And then chapter eight, which I think is brings you into a positive mode of interest, which is called flip the script and change the narrative. And it's about, and it provides some strategies of what you can do in relation to understanding and managing sophisticated everyday racism. That's chapter eight. Victoria, fascinating work. And I can tell you as one of those white women, I need to learn more. And I am so grateful that you and colleagues are doing that kind of work so that we can get better at doing what we're doing in schools, right? I hope so. It's not easy, you know, Jennifer. You don't make lots of friends, as you use those words, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a tough one. And on the front of the book, I asked my daughter, I was in Ohio for the UCEA conference. And um, I said to Charlotte, Charlotte wasn't with me, but I rang her up and I said to her, still, I'm thinking about putting something on the front of the book. And she said, oh, what are you going to do? I said, I think I'm going to put a, a swan, a black swan. I said, what do you think about a black swan on the front of my book? She said, cool, cool, cool. I said, what do you mean by cool? And she said, well, not many books with a swan on them, mum. I said, good. That's why I'm going to put it on this. <laughs> you know, when we get advice from our daughters, I have a beautiful 23-year-old daughter. And when I get advice from her, it's actually really sound. So I think your daughter has uh, absolutely nailed it. And if she gives you the two thumbs up on a black swan on the cover, you know you're heading in the right direction. Cool, cool, cool. Whatever cool means. You know what I mean? <laughs> Victoria, this has been a fascinating conversation. And I know listeners will be thinking, I want to hear more. So I hope that we can have another conversation in the future. You are doing great work in the area of educational research and helping us as leaders do a better job in our schools. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks to Victoria for joining our podcast today and for sharing her thoughts and research on Black girls and well-being. Victoria has lived experience in this world. She's propelled this experience into research that will make all of us as educators stop and think about how we facilitate learning in our schools and in our education systems. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in a roundtable called Critical Perspectives on Well-Being, New Research, where Victoria was a featured panelist along with Andy Hargraves and Dennis Shirley. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.